Welcome back to WeCast. I'm your host, Brock Benson. It's been another great week in the West End with a touch of snow down here in the canyon and daytime highs up in the 40s and 50s with nighttime lows below freezing. The San Juans are even more covered in snow than they were last week. And don't forget that the Parade of Lights and Elf and Eve are taking place this week, so do your best to get out there and support some local businesses while simultaneously spreading some of that good old-fashioned West End Christmas cheer. I hear Tammy Gillespie still has some pie orders to fill, if you know how to get a hold of her. The pies she makes are absolutely gorgeous, and I hear they taste great, too. From the Trailhead Sound Lab in Natarita, Colorado, this is a 141 production in cooperation with the Rimrocker Historical Society and the San Miguel Basin Forum. This is Volume 74, Issue Number 27 of the San Miguel Basin Forum, bringing you all the headlines out of the West End of Colorado for the week of December 6th, 2023. The price of uranium as of November 27th is $81. All right, making headlines this week in high school sports, Lady Mustangs play Meeker Tournament, Galley nominated to All-Tournament Team. The Lady Mustangs were at a three-day tournament over the weekend in Meeker with both JV and Varsity on the court. Head coach for the girls, Zandon Bray, told the San Miguel Basin Forum it was a girls-only tournament. On Thursday, the JV team lost in overtime by four points. The Varsity lost by one in overtime. Coach agreed the girls were competitive in their first games of the season. Quote, they were close games, he said Friday morning. Quote, very winnable. They were good games, end quote. On Friday, JV lost to Meeker in overtime, but then the Varsity beat Sirocco 42-24. On Saturday, JV almost beat Altamont 39-18, and the Varsity won over Hayden 46-29. For the tournament, Nucla took fifth place overall, and Lantry Galley was selected to the all-tournament team. Bray is assisted this year by Debbie Waitulka. Bray is coached before for middle school football and also peewee football and basketball. This is his first high school coaching job. Waitulka has a few decades of high school coaching under her belt. There are 17 girls out for the team this year, though one is not cleared to play due to a knee injury. There are just two seniors and the team is very young. Only five of the girls are from Nucla and the rest are coming down from Norwood this year. Quote, they have not had a chance to play together very often, he said, but they're playing hard. Coach said the girl's effort is good and he saw that over the weekend. Quote, what I saw was high effort, he said. Quote, everyone on the team is extremely athletic. It helps when coaching that the girls are athletes, end quote. There's a lot happening for the Lady Mustangs before the winter break begins. They play Montrose December 5th. This coming weekend, the girls head to Rangeley for another tournament. It's varsity only, but it includes the guys' teams, too. They'll play three games for it. The following weekend, before the break starts, they have a tournament in Dove Creek, too. Games resume after the first of the year. Like the guys' season, the girls will play through February, and the state tournament happens in March. Practice happens nightly until then. The girls practice right after school when the guys are wrestling. Boys' basketball practice happens after the girls, a system which seems to be working out well. What do the girls need to be successful this season? Bray said playing time, and time to gel together as a team. Only four to five of the ladies were on the high school team last year. Everyone else is new. Getting experience playing together will happen through the upcoming games. As far as buses and transportation go, Bray said the Mustangs are not feeling the crunch as badly as some other districts are. He's feeling okay about the season's travel. West End Public Schools is handling it, and three parents from Norwood have volunteered to drive the girls down from Wright's Mesa for practices. Regarding the Nuclean Norwood girls competing together rather than against each other, Bray said that needs to happen. Quote, we need to keep them on the same team, he said. Quote, my opinion is whether a combine or co-op, 
them on the same team. That's what needs to happen, end quote. Bray is looking forward to the new school and the new gyms, as are the players. Quote, they are extremely excited about that, he said. Quote, we'll be in the old school until Christmas break. Our first home game is in the new gym. Everyone is excited about that. When we talk about that, the girls get big smiles on their faces, end quote. On the team this year are seniors Kieran Bray and Paige Spore, juniors Viviana Zunich, Cadence Shaw, and Kendra McClure, sophomores Darcy Bray and Kylie Shepardson, and freshman Lantry Galley, Sydney Tomlinson, Josie Tedder, Reese Elwood, Maggie Andrews, Shay Snyder, Maria Camacho, Holly Johnson, and Charlie Mole. Manager is freshman Bryla Butler. In Nuclear News, new homes may be built on Main Street by Reagan Tuttle, editor. It's true, the parcel south of the old Nucle Elementary School sold in July, and now a developer is aiming to put a number of homes on that site. The details of that project have not been finalized, according to officials from Town of Nucle. Melissa Lampshire, Nucle's town clerk, told the forum on Monday that the person who bought the parcel requested a variance from the Nucle town board for zoning since the land use code was recently updated. The new code now specifies commercial zoning on Main Street, whereas before there was no zoning code in place. Nucle's board has been in discussion with the applicant, who's first came to trustees with a desire to build 18 homes total. The board did grant a variance for his development project and would grant an application for homes as long as the developer left room for commercial space too. Lampshire said the applicant is now working on the soils report and other preliminary tasks, and she's not sure how fast the project will go. Lampshire has connected the developer with town's civil engineer, Mesa Engineering, since the firm knows Nucle's infrastructure. At this point, however, there is no real application for development. Quote, we don't have anything, she said. Quote, nothing has been brought to town board, only discussion. End quote. What is Nucle's development process? There is no planning commission. Currently, the board oversees applications and the trustees make decisions on development and the master plan process. What Lampshire has been told by the developer is that the Fading West Company, which makes manufactured homes in Buena Vista, Colorado, might be used for the construction plan. Probably garages will be included. That's the same company that produced Norwood's homes for the Pinion Park neighborhood, the new deed-restricted development for San Miguel County. Lampshire said Nucleus Homes won't be deed-restricted, though. They'll be free market, not low-income or affordable, and likely priced between $250,000 and $300,000. Lampshire's opinion is that's a good thing. She's personally glad that the deed-related development wasn't established in Nucleus. She didn't want Nucleus to be a guinea pig for rural homes, first development, and Norwood still hasn't sold all of their deed-restricted homes yet. She wants any development in Nucleus to be free market real estate. Now it's up to the developer to decide what he wants to apply for. The last board discussion agreed that 18 homes on the parcel was too many, but perhaps 15 with commercial space might be acceptable. Lampshire has no idea how many the developer will apply for, and she doesn't want to speculate. Ultimately, the board will decide, but she knows some board members don't want too many homes in the business district. Lampshire said town officials want to encourage business in Nucla. She said some business owners want to be on Highway 141 in Natarita with more visitors and traffic, but Nucla has lower taxes and affordable water. She said the right businesses will come to Nucla. Lampshire added details on the new housing development will be announced when she knows more. All right, in environmental news, we can thank Uriah Walker for Russian Olive by Reagan Tuttle. Anyone in Nucla knows what Russian olives smell like. It's a sweet, fragrant tree that perfumes the West End in late spring. It's got silvery leaves and some thorns, 
Some people actually like the scent, others despise it, especially if they're allergic to it. Regardless, most people agree that the Russian olive is a tree that doesn't belong in these parts. It's invasive, it spreads, it chokes out other native plants, and sucks water from the local landscape. Dean Naslin, superintendent of the CC Ditch, agreed Russian olive is a nuisance. He started a program years ago to eradicate it. He later turned that over to the late Terry Brickey, who tried to eradicate many of the Russian olives. Naslin said in order to completely get rid of Russian olives, though, everybody has to get on board. He added birds eat the seeds and then sit on the fence and the trees just spread. He said the ditch board can work every spring to rip them out along the water, but in the fall, the problem persists. He's personally gotten rid of 99% of Russian olives on his farm and ranches, but that's because he's worked hard at spraying and ripping them out. He said if you simply rip the tree out, more come back in its place. He said you have to spray a mature tree first and then rip it out. He said some people are opposed to spraying, but that's what works. Quote, you have to be pretty persistent, he said. Quote, they're a real nuisance on the ditch, and they're all over Montrose. They're all over everywhere. End quote. If the Russian olive is invasive, how did it get here? Who brought it? Jane Thompson of the Rimrocker Historical Society knows exactly who's responsible. She told the forum one of the original pioneers, Uriah Walker, brought the Russian olive along with other heirloom fruit trees he imported. Thompson said Walker was quite the arborist. The late historian Marie Templeton shared Walker's story with her, and there were historic CC ditch documents that report on the trees Walker brought. Walker, in fact, lived in the house off CC Road, the one with the long lane and the stunning trees that line it all the way to the old house where the carvers live now. Quote, that was his homestead, Thompson said, quote, and he brought a lot of different trees in, end quote. Walker is on Thompson's list of future research. He's big in nuclear history. Likely, Walker didn't realize the terrible legacy he'd leave the West End with and simply brought Russian olives as an ornamental tree. Thompson said the West End community shared everything back then, all kinds of resources, trees included. Thompson assumes the Russian olive was shared throughout Natarita, which was later cleared, and Paradox too, though Paradox doesn't have as many of the invasive trees. Thompson said Walker and an heir, a son who stayed in the West End after his father's passed, he lived his life in Nukla, too, and was also an arborist, carrying on his father's work, probably contributing to the Russian olive spread. Colorado Parks and Wildlife confirms that Russian olive, Elangus angustifolia, is hard to control. In fact, they say it's close to impossible, and they confirm the tree is able to sprout from the root crown. Control is best done with young plants. Colorado Parks and Wildlife adds that working on isolated patches is best before attacking large areas. They recommend using a combination of fire, herbicides, and digging. All right, in business news, Zunich's West End roots run deep. Salon celebrates 36 years by Reagan Tuttle, editor. Michelle Zunich, owner and operator of the Works Salon and Day Spa in Nukla, is deeply rooted in the West End. Her grandfather was a rancher in Redvale, and her father was a coal miner who retired from the Peabody Mine. As a child, she grew up visiting her uncle Chuck Zunich, who retired from San Miguel Power Association in Third Park at his ranch. She loved her life in the West End, and she's had a career that's helped to sustain her. Her mother was a hairdresser in the West End for 49 years. In fact, Carrie Zunich went to hair school when she was pregnant with 
Michelle Zunich. Quote, so you could say I was born and bred into it, said Zunich of her career in the salon business. Michelle Zunich then went to school after graduating Nuclear High School in 1990. In 1991, she graduated Xenon International School of Hair Design in Denver. She came back to the West End and worked for a bit in Telluride at the Peaks Hotel. After having Colby Grierson, her son, now in the U.S. Air Force, she took over her mom's business and clientele. Many of her mother's clients stayed with her over the years. One of them, Zunich's first nail client, still drives from Grand Junction to Nucla to see her for nail appointments. The works is a one-woman show. That means it's just Zunich doing hair, nails, waxing, pedicures, and some body piercings, too. While the average career span of a nail technician is approximately 15 years, Zunich has more than three decades of experience doing the work, and she's still enjoying it. Quote, they said, if you find something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And I love it, she said. And she enjoys her space at 356 Main Street in Nucla. Except for the Main Street construction that has been ongoing for this year, she said if the purple flag is flying, though, that means she's open. Hours of operation are Tuesday through Friday, though she's open in December this year on Saturdays because people want their services before the holiday arrives. She also has male clients, and she says the men are quite loyal customers. Many in town might remember Victor Brown. The old barber who cut hair in Nuclaw on Main Street until he was 98 years old, Brown actually shared some of his wisdom with Zunich and her mom. In fact, he taught them the high and tide, a technique used in military-type cuts. Zunich now has a few of Brown's old clients since the old man passed a few years ago. And she cuts children's hair, too. She does the whole family and in the only salon space in Nucla proper. She agrees what she does helps people relax and feel good about themselves. Quote, I'm all about making everybody feel good, she said. Quote, it's a special treat to get your nails done, too. Zunich is actually a third-generation hairdresser. Her great-aunt did the work in Colorado Springs. With clients from Moab to Telluride now, people keep finding her. With 36 years behind her, she has no plans of retiring anytime soon. She said it will be a bit before she lays her scissors down. All right, on page two, we have Tips from the West End Posse, Estimating Distances by Mark Reckay. My old grandfather would spot a herd of mule deer on a distant mountainside and guess their distance. Quote, there's a half dozen muleys on the ridge up there, 450 yards, I'd say. And the last one is a nice buck, he would proclaim. Estimating distances has never been my strong suit. The invention of the laser rangefinder and having it in a pocket size has saved me from not properly estimating yardage. Problem is... I don't carry it with me everywhere I go. The easiest way of estimating a distance is to pace it off. The normal pace for an average person is 30 inches. Since none of us are average, we need to measure our pace. Start out by finding something with a pre-measured distance, like a football field. You know the field is 100 yards or 300 feet, goal line to goal line. When pacing something off, count your right foot pace only and multiply by two when you reach 100 paces. It makes keeping track much easier over longer distances. If you are pacing off a very long distance, put pebbles in one pocket and transfer one to another pocket every 100 paces. This method never works for me because I always have holes in my pocket so the pebbles roll down my pant leg and into my shoes. Count pebbles in my shoe, I guess. Pace distances can change because of slopes and inclines. Pace distance increases on a downhill stretch and decreases when walking uphill. Another method of estimating distance involves a little understanding of human anatomy. First, measure the distance between the center of the pupil of your eyes. With a pair of binoculars, measure the distance between the center of the eyepieces when adjusted for your eyes. For the average person, 
It's about two inches. With this method, you will only estimate distance by using only your extended thumb. Your extended arm to the tip of your thumb is about 20 inches or 10 times longer than the distance between your eyes. Let's say you are standing on a ridge and want to estimate the distance to a parked truck you see on a distant road. You estimate the truck is 25 feet long, bumper to bumper. Hold your right arm out directly in front of you, elbow straight and thumb upright in the thumbs up position. With one eye closed, align your upright thumb so that it covers the distant object, in this case, the truck. Without moving your head, extend arm or upright thumb, switch eyes so that your open eye is now closed and the other eye is open. Observe closely whether the truck now appears with the other eye open. Your thumb should appear to have moved to some point away from the object. Estimate this displacement by equating it to the size of something you are familiar with. In this case, it is a 25-foot-long truck. You can use power poles, buildings, an animal, anything you can guess the length of. In this case, the distant truck is 25 feet long. It appears that five trucks could fit in the displacement or 125 feet. Multiply that figure by 10 the ratio of the length of your arm to the distance between your eyes, and you have the estimated distance to the distant truck, or 1,250 feet. When you hold out your thumb and view it with one eye open, then with the other eye open, your finger shifts relative to the object's background, moving from side to side. This is called parallax, and the parallax of a distant object is the angle between its direction of view from the two ends of a baseline. Like all other outdoor skills, you are going to want to practice this estimation of distances. I was outside in the front yard pointing at the single lady's car up the street, estimating the distance. She caught me and now thinks I was pointing at her and winking. Now I am in trouble with the wife because she would never understand the truth. Guess I should practice in the backyard from now on. <laughs> all right, in Dark Skies News, Local Reserve gets funding support special to the forum. Last week was a good one for the Western Slope Dark Sky Coalition San Miguel County Dark Sky Reserve Project. It received $5,000 from San Miguel County and 70 hours of expert consulting time from the state of Colorado. Previously, the coalition had received $2,000 from the Telluride Foundation and $1,000 from San Miguel Power Association and Basin Electric. A $2,000 proposal is still under review by Mountain Village. This influx of funding and help will accelerate the reserve application process by a team of citizens led by Bob. Grossman. The team was accepted as a member of the coalition, ensuring support for their work. Major tasks have already been accomplished. A revision of the San Miguel County Land Use Code's exterior lighting section was accepted as compliant with reserve requirements by Dark Sky International, the organization that designates Dark Sky places like reserves. A reserve has two components, a core that is pristine, few or no exterior lights, but accessible by the public and a periphery that would protect the core from light contamination threats. The U.S. Forest Service working with the coalition identified the Thunder Trails Recreation Area in Norwood as the core of the reserve. Negotiating with Dark Skies International, Commissioner Chris Holstrom and Grossman were able to have the entire county be identified as the periphery of the reserve. Measurements showing how dark it is at the trailhead of Thunder Trails and a mile or two from the core toward Norwood have been taken for almost a year and are ongoing thanks to Kevin and Kiki Cheney. David Mueller and Grossman recently spent an evening on Burn Canyon Road, obtaining Mueller's expert astrophotographs of light domes surrounding the core from Grand Junction, Delta Olathe, Montrose, Nuclanaterita, and Telluride Mountain Village. 
No light domes were seen to the south. David Craig and Deb Stuber are in the final stages of obtaining a survey of existing public lights for the county with help from the town of Norwood that provided a detailed map of lights associated with the town. Similar maps are pending for Telluride and Mountain Village. Ofer will be sending in a report soon. The land use code will be a template for the applicant's all-important lighting management plan. Dark Sky International's Dark Places coordinator Amber Harrison suggested the reserve application team follow the outline of the recently successful application for the Texas-Mexico Big Bend Dark Sky Reserve. This and a Dark Sky International Review Committee checklist will guide the writing of the application. A January to March window is expected for the application to be submitted to Dark Sky International. If accepted, San Miguel County may be host to the third Dark Sky Reserve in the U.S., first in Colorado and the Western Slope, and 22nd in the world. The May is because we have friendly competition from other groups, one in the San Luis Valley. So to quote the great sage Yogi Berra, it ain't over till it's over. Help from Greater Basin Community would be gratefully accepted. Visit the coalition website at westerncoloradodarksky.org or contact the local group via westerncoloradodarksky at gmail.com. All right, guys, now for the star of the show, History from the Rimrocker Historical Society. This is The Coke Ovens Part 1 by Sharon Johansson from the Rimrocker Historical Society. When you turn off of Highway 141 and onto Highway 90 outside of Natarita at the eastern end of Paradox Valley, you will find the Coke Oven Ranch sitting very quietly on the left-hand side of the road. It's private and owned by a family who has been working hard to preserve, upgrade, and maintain its beauty and history. The ranch house itself has a rich history, but it is the area that has a very interesting story, and one that I have always been fascinated with. Some of you may remember Ernie Anderson, who lived there for many years and worked to bring the property back to its happier times. The property had sat empty and had different owners off and on for many years, and the wear and tear showed. Ernie and his wife made it a home again, and his children have now proudly carried on the work to preserve the ranch. Ernie found many Native American artifacts on his property, reinforcing the knowledge that this was most likely a favorite campsite of the Utes and probably other Native Americans who roamed these hills before the Utes. History also tells us that this area was part of the route the Dominguez Escalante expedition took on their trek through Colorado. But how did this property become what we now call the Coke Ovens? There is still one of the original six Coke Ovens intact on the private property of the ranch, but we are fortunate to have another Coke Oven in our area that we are able to see up close. On Highway 141, as you are on your way to Grand Junction near the Biscuit Rock, there is a perfect example of a Coke Oven. I can remember watching for that landmark as a child and knew that after a long day in Grand Junction, we would be back home in Eurovan soon. Stories passed down through time tell us that this particular Coke Oven was used in the building of the Hanging Flume. Coke ovens were used to heat up coal at a very high temperature to make a byproduct called coke. Coke is then used in smelters to make iron and steel. Back in the early 1900s, Coke ovens were being used all over the country for these purposes. An article from the Montrose Press of July 1903 starts with the headline, We'll Never Lack Coal. There is enough in the mines of the U.S. to supply us indefinitely. The article lists three areas, Pennsylvania, the Virginias, and Alabama, as abundant coking coal fields, and go on to say, quote, with a fourth around a newly developed district in Colorado and Utah, and you have all the known sources of fuel supply for iron and steel making in the United States, end quote. According to an article from the January 1903 issue of the Montrose Enterprise, 
Quote, Wall and McLaughlin, who had a lease on the LaSalle copper mines in Paradox Valley, are working those properties more extensively than any time heretofore. They have the copper mat smelter located in close proximity to the mines in operation, which is turning out a very valuable product. The LaSalle mine is doubtless producing the richest copper and silver ore of any mine in the state. The mines are some 65 miles west of Placerville, from which point the smelter product is shipped by train. It requires a week for a team and a wagon to make the round trip to Placerville. The owners at present have eight six-horse teams and four four-horse teams. Coke ovens have been built on the leases in Dry Creek some 30 miles from the mine where the coke for the smelter is burned. It can be seen that the operation of a smelter in Paradox Valley is an expensive undertaking, and that mineral to pay a profit under such conditions must carry almost phenomenal values, end quote. The copper mines in Paradox and LaSalle were the reasons for the coke ovens to be built on Dry Creek. Old photos from the Rim Rocker archive show that the original house built next to the coke ovens was still there, along with five of the coke ovens in 1912. Next week, I will share more of the story of the coke ovens area. Well, thank you for that story, Sherrington and Reagan Tuttle. Thank you once again for another edition of our amazing local newspaper. From the Trailhead Sound Lab in Natarita, Colorado, this has been a 141 production in cooperation with the Rim Rocker Historical Society and the San Miguel Basin Forum. This has been Volume 74, Issue Number 27 of the San Miguel Basin Forum, bringing you all the headlines from the West End for the week of December 6th, 2023. I'm your host, Brock Benson. We'll see you next week.